Well, good morning again, Central Church. Great to see you guys. Thanks for your willingness in this service to kind of squeeze in and sit next to people instead of having a lot of empty seats in between. This is by far the most popular service. We appreciate you be, being willing to, to kind of be packed in here. So thanks for that. If you're watching us online this morning, whether that's our Facebook Live or our website or uh, Fox Network, we're glad you're joining us today. God bless you wherever you are. And for the rest of you that are here, we, we love college students. And today's a special day for us when we sort of officially welcome back uh, students to college campuses. Uh, college years is a significant time in most people's lives when they make significant decisions, whether that's related to marriage or career or, more importantly, a decision to follow Christ. That's when my life got turned around, was in college. And so if you're a college student, we want to officially and, and warmly welcome you today. And if you're just, just new to the area, uh, you know, look around at other churches, but, but we certainly would, would invite you and welcome you to, to make Central your church home. Get involved in small groups here. Get involved in our college ministry. Right after the service, there's, there's some gifts and cinnamon rolls and things we want to just, just give you. Um, and so you can make your way out toward our Central Perk area, and we'd love to meet you and, and greet you in that way. Tonight at 4 o'clock is our baptism service. It's by far the most inspiring and, and motivational service that we do all year. So even if you're not, if you don't know someone that's being baptized tonight, please come and support those that are, that are going to stand up here on the stage and publicly declare their faith in Christ. It's a big moment for them, and as a church family, we, we want to come and, and surround them with that. Amen? All right, if you have a Bible this morning, please take it out and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Gospel of John, chapter 19. We're in a series called The Life. It's a study in John's Gospel. If you find the New Testament, you're, you're four books away, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. If you need a Bible, there's probably one in the seat back pocket in front of you, or if you're up front, there's probably one underneath the seat near you this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we are, as we are opening our Bibles right now, as, as I hear pages rustling, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe life into those words. Help us to understand them in a deeper and more meaningful way today. And then help us to apply them. Help us to appreciate the work of the cross today as we study it. And Lord, we think about our world and what's happening in Afghanistan, what's happening in, in other parts of the world, Lord. We, we ask for mercy. We ask for healing. Uh, we ask for protection from evil people. Uh, we pray, Lord, for divine order to be established, that indeed your kingdom would come into the earth as it is in heaven, that you'd give world leaders wisdom as they navigate the chaos we find ourselves in. Lord, that, that you, uh, Lord, your gospel would be the difference maker in people's lives, uh, that you would be glorified among all the nations. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right. Courage inspires courage. Courage inspires, when, when you see courageous people, it inspires you to be courageous. So, so whose life has inspired you? Who in your life has inspired you to live differently? Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a coach. Think about someone whose life made you live differently. Who in your life lived with such courage that it's given you courage to deal with the challenges and fears that you face in your life? Was, was there a person or, or people in your life that changed you because of the way they attacked life? Who was that? Last Saturday, I did a funeral in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, I got a phone call about a month ago from a young family that had given birth to their second son. And he was born with a... Um, a, a genetic disorder that allowed for 
uh, his organs to move around and be displaced and misplaced. And uh, his intestines and his liver had moved up into his chest cavity, uh, preventing his lungs from developing. When he came out of the womb, he wasn't able to breathe, uh, eventually put on an ECMO machine and surgery and those kinds of things. Um, 22 days into his life, he died. And I got a phone call from the, the parents, and I, we, we had sort of, they, they had attended Central before, and we, we kind of walked through some of the challenges they were facing. And then they asked me to be a part of, of the ceremony. And so my wife, Charlene, and I last Saturday dro- drove to Des Moines to be a part of that. And, and as I'm thinking about words to say, how can, I, how can I encourage? How can I give life? How can I give hope? Uh, and, and, and praying about that and thinking about that. I sat down, and and the mom and dad were the only ones that shared at this memorial service. And in their pain and in their brokenness, they began to talk about the struggle. They began to talk about their hearts being broken. They they, they talked about, as parents, the the worst possible scenario in their life, losing their son after 22 days. And then they began to say things like this, we're Christians, and God is still faithful. Faithful. And God is still good. And God still loves us. And even though God didn't answer the prayers the way we wanted them to be answered, he's still sovereign. He's still good. He still has a plan. In fact, God had a divine purpose, a a 22-day purpose for our son. God God did what he wanted to do. And and we wish it would have turned out differently. But but we want to stand up here and say as Christians, our faith is stronger today. And I tell you what, as, as they shared that, with everybody that was there, it, it inspired people to courage. People are thinking, if those parents can go through the most devastating thing that a parent could possibly go through and come out of it with, with in faith intact and hope in God, that, that gives us hope that we can face our challenges. That, that gives us hope that, that we could face the most difficult things in life and with Christ, we can get through it and still believe in God, and still believe that God is good and loving and faithful. Amen? Courage inspires courage in our lives, and they certainly did. In John chapter 19, we're going to look at at the most important story in the entire New Testament, the story of the cross of Jesus Christ. And one of the things we're going to talk about in this story is that courage inspires courage. John chapter 19, we're going to begin reading in verse 17. It's a lengthy passage, so bear with me. Verse 16. When Pilate handed Jesus over to the Jewish leaders to be crucified, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull. It's the place of death, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And there they crucified Jesus. With him two other men, one on one side and another on the other, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. As they entered Jerusalem, they they saw the sign above the cross It was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek so that all visitors to Jerusalem that day, whatever language they spoke, would understand who it was that was being crucified. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but but write, he said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered and said, what I have written, I have written. 
Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took the outer garments and they made four parts, a part for every soldier and also the tunic, the inner garment. And the tunic was seamless, woven together into one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but we'll, we'll cast lots for it, we'll gamble for it to see who, whose it will be. This fulfilled the scripture that said, they divided my garments among them. My clothing, they cast lots. Prophecy from Psalm 22. Verse 25, therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, reference to John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, behold, woman, your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household, Joseph being dead by this point. Uh, John takes Mary, the mother, uh, the mother of Jesus, into his own house to take care of her. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to Jesus' mouth. Let me pause there for a second. At the beginning of the crucifixion, Jesus was offered wine mixed with gall, which was a painkiller. And Jesus refused that. Jesus didn't want to bear the suffering of the cross with any medication or painkiller. He, he wanted to carry the full weight of suffering on the cross. So initially, Jesus declines the wine mixed with gall. And now he accepts a small drink placed on a sponge. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, which had no medication in it, it was just uh, a cheap wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation for the Passover, so that all bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath, this Sabbath was a high day, it was the Sabbath of the Passover. They asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, the three crucified victims, and that they might be taken away. Uh, crucifixion. Uh, there was a, a board or a stand nailed to the cross and the crucified victim would place his feet on that and, and keep pushing himself up to get a full breath of air in his lungs. As he sagged down on the cross, his lungs would collapse and he wouldn't be able to breathe. Um, by breaking the legs of the victims, it would, it would prevent them from having any leverage on the board to push up and they would be asphyxiated very quickly because they couldn't hold themselves up any longer. So it says the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and, and the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe in Christ. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture that said, not a bone of his shall be broken. What's the significance of that prophecy from Exodus chapter 12? It was a prophecy about the Passover lamb, that when they were preparing the Passover lamb, none of, none of the, the bones of the Passover lamb were to be broken. And Jesus Christ was the Passover lamb. It's amazing how prophecy is fulfilled. 
He was already dead. They didn't break his legs to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus was, in fact, the lamb of sacrifice. Verse 37, again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced, both with nails in the hands and feet and with a sword in the side. After these things, Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, note that. He was a secret disciple. He didn't come to Jesus publicly because of fear of the Jews. Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted Joseph permission. So he came and took away the body of Christ, and then Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, remember Nicodemus came in chapter 3 to Jesus at night, again, secretly and in private. He brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds of spices. So they took the body of Jesus, and they bound it in the linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had ever been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation of the Passover, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. What happened at the cross? We could could go through this whole chapter. There's so many rich things. There's, There's prophecies fulfilled. Did you know that Jesus fulfilled himself over 300 prophecies of the Old Testament in detail? Over 28 of those specific to the cross or the crucifixion of Jesus fulfilled in detail. We could could talk about all kinds of things in this chapter related to the cross of Christ. I just want to talk about three things that happened at the cross. And if you're taking notes this morning, you can follow along. The first is this, Jesus completed the work of salvation. At the cross, Jesus completed the work of salvation. As we go back to chapter uh, chapter 19, verse 28 to 30, it says Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. What mission was that? The mission to not only be God, but to take on flesh and blood and to come to the earth and live a sinless life and die a criminal's death so that he could take the sins of humanity upon himself. That was the mission of Jesus, to save you and I from eternal death and suffering and give us life by forgiving our sins on the cross. He said, knowing that his mission was now finished and to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to Jesus' lips. And he drank, and and when he tasted it, he said, it's finished. Then he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. John is the only gospel writer that tells us that Jesus' last words were, it is finished. The other gospel writers mention other sayings or things that Jesus said, but only John says, he said, it is finished. Those three words in English are just one word in the Greek language. It's the Greek word tetelestai, tetelestai. And it has two meanings, two nuances for people to understand in that day. One was this, it was the the fulfillment of an obligation. It was the completement of an assignment. Something had been finished. The other nuance to this word tetelestai in the Greek was that it meant that the the ledger had been balanced or a debt had been paid in full. So which of these meanings of tetelestai was applied or meant by John as he gives us the words of Jesus in John chapter 19? Both of them. Both of the meanings apply to Jesus. Jesus already said the mission was finished. Jesus already said the assignment was complete, the assignment of saving humanity from death through sin. But the other meaning also applies. 
The, the meaning that there was a debt that had to be paid. To Telestai means that the, the balance, the, the, the ledger's been balanced. The debt's been paid. Nothing is owed any longer. It's been, it's been paid in full. And the price of humanity's sin was paid at the cross in full. The, the cross of Jesus Christ and his statement, it is finished, to Telestai, the, de- the debt's been paid, forces us as humans to recognize the reality and the truth that our sin created a great moral debt that we had no ability to pay. Your lust, your greed, your sexual sin, your anger, your rage, your profanity, your dishonesty, your cheating, you're not loving God with all of your heart. All of those things created a moral debt that you couldn't pay and I couldn't pay. Jesus paid it by himself. When Jesus hung on the cross and said, it's finished, he meant that he himself completed the assignment without your help and without my help. It, it meant that, that through his atoning work on the cross, the debt had been paid. So Jesus, Jesus did not hang on the cross of Calvary. He didn't hang there, and he didn't say, hey, guys, hey, y'all, I'm going to pick up most of this, but y'all need to chip in a little bit. See, now, when, when my wife, Shirlene, and I want to get our, our whole family together, which we do about once a year, we, we travel somewhere to California or somewhere, and, and we have to bribe them to get them there. So, so here's what we, we say. We'll, we'll pay for the accommodations, Grandma and Grandpa, we'll pay for the accommodations, and we'll, we'll pick up most of the food. Just get here, right? You're going to have to pay for airfare. You're going to have to rent a car. There could be some other expenses. We're going to pick up most of the tab, but you, you need to chip in a little bit. Jesus didn't say that on the cross. Jesus didn't hang on the cross and say, hey, guys, I'm going to get most of this. I, I'm, I'm going to pick up most of it, but y'all need, to, y'all need to do your part. He never said that. What he said was, It's finished. It's paid in full, and I paid it without any contribution on your part. I I paid it without anything that you could possibly give to contribute to this debt, because you can't. Your your trying to be a good person has no effect on your salvation. You're, You're trying to cut sin out of your life has no effect on salvation in your life. Contrary to Catholic theology, Mary is not co-mediator with Jesus. Mary does not contribute anything to salvation. It's Jesus alone. Scripture says there's, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, no one else. No one else partners with Jesus to bring salvation, to procure it and save people. Jesus alone is the mediator. The, the sacraments of the church, communion, baptism, none of that saves you. None of that contributes to your salvation. There's nothing you can do. Jesus paid it all without your help. And without your help, that's right. Here's what the scripture says. Galatians chapter 2. You and I are Jews, but Paul is talking to Peter, and he says, we're both Jews by birth. We're not sinners, quote, like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ and not by obeying the law. We, and we've believed in Christ Jesus 
so that we might be made right with God, acceptable to God, forgiven by God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. And as if he hadn't said it twice already, he says it again, for no one will ever say ever. No one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. None of your works matter. Just the death of Christ on the cross. That's it. Another scripture. This is a beautiful scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, you know that God paid a ransom, a price, to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it wasn't paid with gold or silver, which is human currency, which, which, which fades away. There, there is no human currency that can contribute to salvation. It was simply the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. See, you and I could not pay for our sin because our blood was corrupt. We were corrupted by the sin of Adam, our ancestor. We, we have sin running through our veins. Sinful people can't die for sinful people. Only a sinless person can die for sinful people. And only Jesus Christ, by means of the virgin birth, had holy, pure, unstained, spotless blood running through his body. He was the only atoning sacrifice for sin. So, so none of our effort, none of our, our, our human works contribute to the work of salvation. Hey, have you ever been somewhere where, where they say, a restaurant, a business, somewhere where they say, oh, we, we, we don't take cash? Anybody ever been there? Or, or we don't take credit cards? Anybody ever been there? Or you've been in a foreign country, and they say, we, we, don't, we don't accept American dollars. So, so what do you do? You, you exchange your currency, right? You, you go to an office where they will exchange your currency for the currency of that nation or that kingdom or, or whatever in that restaurant they accept. You have to convert it. Well, friends, the reality is there is no conversion of your currency in heaven. What that means is when you go to heaven and, and you get there and it's like, well, why, why, why let you in? And you're like, well, I got, I got a whole bunch of stuff here that I want to cash in. I've been doing a lot of good stuff. I want to cash it in. They said, no, 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 hold on. There's only one currency in heaven. It's the blood of Christ. Just one currency. And you don't have it. You can receive it by grace but you didn't earn it. Well, I, I did a lot of good stuff. I, there is no currency exchange in heaven. Everything that you think you can trade in for acceptance with God, you can trade in somehow for forgiveness of sin. There, there is no trade in. Your currency is useless. They're going to turn you away at the gate and say, we don't accept that here. All we accept is the blood of Jesus. Does it cover your life? Have you trusted Christ alone for your salvation? But that's, that's the only means of righteousness. Not only did Jesus complete the work of salvation, but Jesus declared victory over Satan at the cross. Jesus declared victory over Satan at the cross. Now, when Jesus hung on the cross and when Jesus said, it is finished, it wasn't a whisper. It wasn't something he sort of muttered under his breath. And people were like, what? What'd you say? It was something he shouted. And there's significance to that. So as we, as we go to the, these two verses, John doesn't give us that, that insight. 
But Matthew does. Matthew's very same account. John says, when Jesus had tasted the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now listen to Matthew's order on this. Matthew says, about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders understood, misunderstood and thought that Jesus was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to Jesus on a reed stick so he could drink it. John told us about that, remember? And that Jesus actually took that wine. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus did what? Shouted. Jesus shouted. Matthew says he shouted again, but he doesn't tell us what he shouted and released his spirit. But John tells us what he shouted. After he took the wine, John tells us he shouted, it is finished. Tetelestai. Why did Jesus take the wine? Because crucifixion dehydrates you. Crucifixion makes your throat swell. It's difficult to speak as you've been beaten and had blood loss and your body's in shock and you're dehydrated. It's hard to get words out. And Jesus was about to say something that everybody needed to hear. He needed to articulate it clearly and with authority for all the people to hear and for Satan to hear and all of the demons to hear. So he took the wine to clear his throat and then he shouted, Tetelestai, it's finished. Now this word in the Greek is used all over the New Testament. Let me give you a couple examples where this, this phrase shouted or spoke loudly. One of them is in, in Matthew chapter 14, when, when Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water. Well, the disciples are on the boat in the middle of the night in a storm, and Jesus comes walking to them on the water. Do you remember that story? And they don't know it's Jesus. It says that they, they think it's a ghost, and they say, I think that's a ghost. That's how they said it. That, that might be a ghost. Do you think? No. If you think something's a ghost, you say, it's a ghost! Are you kidding? They were shouting, it's a ghost. So Peter jumps out of the boat when Jesus is there. Peter walks on the water a little ways, and then Peter gets his eyes off Jesus. He looks at the wind and the waves, and he's about to die. He's drowning. And he says, Lord, could you help me? Jesus, save me. He's got to speak over the wind and the waves. One more reference of this verse spoke loudly. Lord, save me! That's the voice, that's the intensity, that's the veracity with which Jesus, hanging on the cross, said, it's finished. The debt's been paid. The mission is accomplished. I love what Leon Morris says about this. Leon Morris says, it would appear that the, the loud cry that John's talking about is, to die, it's finished. Jesus died with the cry of the victor on his lips. This is not the, the moan of the defeated or the sigh of patient resignation. It's the triumphant recognition that he, was now, he had now fully accomplished the work that he came to do. The declaration of Jesus Christ on the cross was a declaration that all the powers of hell, the power of death, the power of the grave had been defeated soundly, that it no longer had authority over humanity, but Christ had broken the power of the evil one at the cross. Another scripture. Colossians 2.15. In this way, Jesus, God disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them by public, he shamed them publicly by his victory over them. Where? What happened 
at the cross. The powers of darkness were stripped of their power and publicly shamed. What the enemy meant for evil, God turned around for his greatest glory. All the demons in hell, all the powers of darkness, all the forces of evil in life were defeated through the cross of Jesus Christ. Another scripture, Hebrews 2.14, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of who? The devil, who had power over death. Christ at the cross declared victory over Satan. Here's the reality. The reality is if Satan can't keep you out of heaven, he's going to try to make your life hell. If he can't send you to hell, he's going to try to bring hell into your life now. And he attacks Christians all the time. That's why Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, put on the full armor of God. Engage the enemy. He's attacking you. Know how to defend yourself. Know how to overcome him. Know the authority that you have in Christ. Not to come under the the, the power of the enemy because he's been defeated at the cross. He wants to deceive you into believing that he has control in your life. And he doesn't. He was defeated at the cross. Do you ever feel attacked by the enemy? You ever feel attacked with doubt? Doubting that God is good? Doubting that God cares about you? Doubting that God will be faithful to his word? Doubting, doubting, doubting that God is what he said he was? Do you ever get discouraged in life? You ever filled with despair? You ever feel like things are never going to change? This darkness is going to be, this, this grief, this sorrow, this misery, this whatever. You ever feel stuck? We all do. I, I had a conversation with a mom a couple of days ago. And she called because her daughter is in middle school and struggling with that, that phase of lying and being dishonest. Dishonest with parents dishonest with teachers. She just lies, covers up everything in her life. And the mom's just distraught. Like, like I've tried everything. What, what, what are we going to do to change this behavior in my daughter's life? She just felt stuck. And, and we talked about what are some things, what are some methods, what are some things, practical things you can do to begin to turn that in the right direction, help her to understand the value of honesty and why that's important in her life and why dishonesty is harmful and all of those things. We talked about some practical, practical things, but at the end of the day, it's this feeling of hopelessness like this circumstance is never going to change. And we feel that in other areas. of we feel, we feel bound in addiction, hopeless by sin and addiction, bondage. We feel like our kids are stuck, our grandkids are stuck, our lives are stuck, circumstances aren't going to change. We're, we're here and, and nothing can change this. And the enemy wants you to think that you're stuck. The reality is that at the cross, Jesus defeated the powers of darkness, and you can walk in liberty. You can walk in freedom in Christ. And there's some of you here today, you're hopeless, stuck. And when Jesus said, it's finished, he spoke it to the principalities and powers and everyone that would listen that Satan and the evil one is defeated. His power's been broken over your life. You are covered in the blood of Jesus. First uh, John chapter 5, verses, I think it's verse 19, maybe verse 20, somewhere in that area. Uh, John says, uh, the, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, but not us as Christians. We're free. Friend, 
You're free in Christ. Walk in that liberty. Amen? Not only did, did Jesus complete the work of salvation, not, not only did Jesus declare victory over Satan, but at the cross, Jesus gave the fearful courage. He gave courage to the fearful. Let's dig a little deeper in the story as we bring it to a close. Let's, let's look at something in the story that, that we normally don't look at that I think is significant in John's account. It's the story of at the end of the chapter where uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take the body of Jesus. Listen to the text. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple, remember he, he didn't come publicly to Christ because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. If, if you remember back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus was afraid for the same reasons of publicly encountering Christ. He wanted to go and have a conversation in private at night when no one would see. The man who had come to Jesus at night, he brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Before the cross, both of these men were afraid to publicly identify with Christ. There, there, was, there was some cost involved for them that they didn't want to pay. There was something they didn't, didn't want to give up. Now, they, they were members of the Jewish council. They, they, would have, they would have been kicked off the Jewish council. Maybe that was it. Maybe they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue or excommunicated from, from the Jewish community. Maybe they were worried about their reputation. Maybe they were worried about losing friends. Maybe they were worried about being shamed or ridiculed. I don't know what their fear was. Before the cross, the fear kept them from publicly acknowledging Jesus. Have you ever experienced that? P public embarrassment of being a Christian? I kind of don't want people to know that I'm a Christian. I, I want to be a secret disciple. It might cost me something. If my boss, if if my friends, if whoever knows that I'm a follower of Jesus, they, they may not like me anymore, they may not want to be around me anymore, or I, I may not advance professionally if, if I profess my faith. What, what is your fear? That's what they were fearing. There was something before the cross that kept them from publicly identifying with Jesus. But there was something about the cross that broke their fears. There was something that happened to them as Jesus hung on the cross that suddenly gave them courage to publicly acknowledge Christ. They, they went to the, to the governor to get the body of Jesus. I mean, they, they were embalming him and, and treating his body. They, this was public now, and it wasn't public before. What changed? What changed them from fearful to courageous as it pertained to their relationship with Jesus? We don't know. I think it was something they saw on the cross. I think it was something they saw in Christ. I think they saw Jesus facing death, facing suffering, facing humiliation, and facing it with courage and conviction and surrender. I think there was something about the testimony of Jesus on the cross that said, if Jesus can do that, so can we. Come on. If Jesus can face death and suffering and humiliation and not shrink back and not back down and, and finish the mission and complete it as Assigned, that's the leader I want to follow because courage inspires what? Courage. And I don't know what your fears are today. I don't know what you're worried about today. I don't know what you're anxious about today. I do know this. The cross can turn your fear 
into courage, amen? Whatever that fear is, Jesus can give you great courage. There, there's, a, there's a story in the Old Testament that it just speaks of this so well. Maybe you've heard of this story. I don't know. It's the story of David and Goliath. Anybody ever heard of the story in David and Goliath? You've heard of that story? Okay, let me, let me share the story. Then let me share something you probably didn't realize about the story. Okay, so the story is David is just a shepherd boy. His brothers are in the military. David loves going to the battlefield to see what's going on. David goes there one day, and there's this giant. His name is Goliath. And Goliath is intimidating the army of Israel, and nobody has the courage to go out and face Goliath. And David comes, and he, and he sees that this, this Philistine, this ungodly warrior, is taunting the army of the living God. And he goes to King Saul, and he says, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? I'll fight against him. And King Saul relents and, and lets David go and fight against him. And this is where the story gets a little bit weird, because most of you have heard this story this way, that we're kind of like the David, and we have giants in our life right? And, and we're going to, through Christ, slay our giants. Well, that might be a secondary application to this story. That's probably true that you can slay giants through Christ, but that, that's not what this story's about. See, in this story, Jesus is David. In this story, no one had the power to bring the giant down. In this story, everybody was shuddering in darkness, and David steps up, and David kills the giant. Remember the sling and the stone, and he hits him in the forehead, and the giant goes down, and David thinks, maybe I just knocked him out. Maybe he's not dead. So David runs up to the giant. He pulls Goliath's own sword because David didn't have a sword, could probably barely lift the sword, and he wielded it and chopped the giant's head off in case there was any life in that giant. Now there was no life, dead as a doornail, right? And what happened then? The Israeli soldiers that were standing on the sidelines in darkness were filled with courage. And suddenly they took off after the Philistine army and chased them out of the region because courage inspires courage. And when these, saw, these men saw David take the giant down, they said, we can finish the job. And when we look at the cross and we see that Jesus Christ took the giant down, he took Satan down, he took death down, he took hell down, we were scared, we couldn't do anything about it, Jesus did it, now we go and we enforce the work of the cross, amen? And we drive out darkness from our lives, we drive out darkness from our family, we drive out darkness from our city, we drive out darkness from our churches, we go in the courage that Christ gives to us, because courage inspires courage. What are you afraid of today? What's got your heart gripped with fear today? That's why Paul could say this in, in Romans, in Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through what? Through Christ, not myself, not pulling out my bootstraps, not talking myself into this, not that I can do it. I can do it through Christ who gives me strength and courage and confidence and the, the gumption that I, everything I need is through Christ. Courage inspires courage and as you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, he faced death, he faced suffering, he faced humiliation, and won. It's finished. And we didn't contribute. He did it all on his own. Would you pray with me this morning? Would you stand as we close?
God, we are so thankful this morning, Jesus, that you slayed the giant. You cut his head off, stripped him of his power and humiliated him at the cross so that we could be free. Lord, keep us from trying to convert human currency into salvation. Help us just to receive the blood of Christ. Help us not try to earn or work for favor and forgiveness and righteousness, but to receive it by faith. And Lord, because the enemy's been defeated, would you help us walk in freedom this week? Help us get unstuck, Holy Spirit. Help us to to believe that the, the powers of darkness were stripped of their power and that because of Christ, we're free. Amen. Amen. Hey, friends, before, before you leave, a couple things. One, if you need prayer this morning, we're going to have some folks up here. If you need to give your heart to Christ this morning, they, they would love to pray with you or anything you need prayer for, they'll pray for. If you're being water baptized tonight, there's a mandatory meeting right now in the prayer chapel, which is out the doors to your left and then to the right, small prayer chapel. You need to get a T-shirt and final instructions for what's happening tonight. And the rest of you come at 4 o'clock tonight, be a part of our baptism service. College students, there's cinnamon rolls and and steak and potato. I don't know what all is out there, but there's, there's, there's something out there. So have a great day. God bless you.